Welcome. Today we have with us Professor Julio Samson. Um, uh, welcome. And he will be um, sharing with us uh, his knowledge of John North, who was a very and still is a very reputed historian of astrology and has produced works that are today still cornerstones for those who want to study this discipline. Uh, welcome again, Professor. Thank you very much. And I'll let you. Okay. <laughs> I do remember the first time I met John North. It was in 1981 on the occasion of the International Congress of History of Science, which took place in Bucharest. That was before the fall of the Wall of Berlin. Romania was at the time a communist country, obviously. And at the closing ceremony of the Congress, I realized that I was in the hall, in the conference hall. I was sitting beside John North precisely. So I began to talk to him. I was very interested in him for purely selfish reasons. John was at the time permanent secretary of the International Academy of History of Science and the chief editor of the Archive Internationale des Traditions. And uh, at that moment, I was interested in being able to publish papers in the Archive, not only my own, but by also those of my students. So the, the, first, the first thing I ask John is, do you mind indeed if we send you some papers from both from me and my students and you can consider whether they are publishable in the archive? And she said, oh, of course, never mind. That conference was important for me in this book because I had connections not only with John, but also with another very important person in my life, Edward Kennedy. I am not talking about the senator. I am talking about uh, Edward Stuart Kennedy, who was an important historian of Islamic astronomy. Mm -hmm. Well, as a result of this small conversation, which I had with John, and also I had lunch with Ted Kennedy, uh, I, was, I realized that people in our job like to travel and they are willing to offer some of their work in the form of a lecture in exchange, of not only in exchange of money, but in exchange of not having to pay any expenses. Uh, so if, you pay, <laughs> if, if, if I paid Ted Kennedy or John North his airfare together with his wife to Barcelona, and I offer them um, to stay at home, uh, they accepted easily. <laughs> uh, and John began to be invited to Barcelona, and he was staying at my home. And uh, we started to, to talk a lot about everything. I even remember one day in which I have, a, for, since I was 40, I have always lived in the village. And I took him for, to, for lunch to a restaurant in a nearby town. And uh, when we, uh, we had beers before lunch, wine during lunch, and some brandy after lunch, which meant that we were, both of us, a little bit uh, uh, 
<laughs> yes, and when, when I was driving, I took we took the, the, the car back home, and John told me, "I bet you we have a car crash before we reach home." <laughs> <laughs> I bet you we don't. <laughs> we didn't actually. It, it is a fact that John had was a man having always a sense of humor. His full name was John David North. He always signs John D. North. And there was a talk. This is a story he told me. There was a talk of him with Willy Hanner. Willy Hanner was a famous German scholar, historian of science. And uh, Willy Hanner asked him, does the D stand for? And John answered, David. And, and Willie said, I was afraid this would be so. The question is, Willie Hunter was not a Nazi or anything of the sort. First played with a rope that David is a Jewish name. And uh, of course, um, this was something that John North was very, was very amused of that story. Uh, in Barcelona, John gave lectures to a small group of people. I mean, we were in the Arabic department. The audience was some seven, eight, ten people listening to John's lessons. I remember some of them that, that were particularly interesting. In one of them, for the first time, he gave us a description of the mechanical clock made by Richard of Wallingford. Uh, in the Abbey of St. Albert's. And it was uh, at that time, quite often, I was retranslating into Spanish what he was saying sometimes. <laughs> and uh, um, I had problems with the, with the technical vocabulary. And in another occasion, he uh, talked about something uh, exceptional. It was the fact that he had been studied studying a prehistorical structure at Hanered Molen in the northern ne Netherlands. And in this site, in this archaeological site, there was only round uh, a mount surrounded by rings of wooden posts, which obviously, in the course of time, they had been rotten, had disappeared. And the only um, left evidence was the decoloration of the sand uh, around in the, in the places where the posts had been uh, located. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was extremely interesting to see what kind of information about astronomical orientations of this structure could be obtained from nothing, because there was nothing there to see. And this was absolutely characteristic of John. At the same time, he also gave us a lecture in, in a summer course in Barcelona uh, on Chaucer's astronomy, which was this, the topic of one of his most famous books. But we had, the first, for the first time, we, li we heard to his ideas about the astrological symbolism includes in many of the stories of the Canterbury Tales and uh, other other um, works of Chaucer. 
<coughs> along these times, it so happened that Richard, the, sorry, Richard's, Richard North was the son of John North, and that he married a Spanish girl from Seville. And he was, uh, the wedding took place in a very Catholic manner in the chapel of the Seville Cathedral, in which there were they are buried King Alfonso X of Castile and his father Ferdinand III also of Castile. And when the wedding took place, uh, send, I was not there, of course, but John sent me a postcard uh, explaining me what had happened. And he said, if my grandmother, who was so such a Methodist in ideas, could have seen but his great grand, her great grandson, where he had been married, he would, she would have been absolutely horrified. <laughs> <laughs> but this was the sense of humor of John. You see, uh, I remember said you should. I, I told him you should speak uh, learn Spanish, because otherwise you may, very often you won't be able to understand your own grandchildren. <laughs> and I imagined Richard speaks Spanish, and he answered. Yes, there is no better way to learn a language than to sleep with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good tip. <laughs> uh, in 1992, this was the, the, the year in which we in Spain were famous. 1992 <coughs> was the conquest of Granada was the arrival to America, was also not very nice, the expulsion of the Jews. The question is that we have many active, uh, cultural activities, and one of them was the celebration of a symposium in the history of Arabic science in Granada. I went there to the opening session, but at the same time I was preparing, I, I had an exhibition on the scientific legacy of Al-Andalus in Madrid. In the archaeological, in the National Archaeological Museum, and I had to go because uh, things were arriving on these days. So the, the, the objects that were to be on the exhibition were arriving there. So I had to run away, and I had seen <coughs> the topic on which John was going to talk, and the topic was, but just who wrote the Alphonsine Tables? Mm. At that time, there was a discussion mainly with Emmanuel Poul, who had uh, the French scholar who had decided that the Alphonsine tables had no connection at all with Alphonse X, that they were done in Paris between 1320 and 1330, and that the, the Spaniards had nothing to do with it. And I, um, as I was going away and I couldn't listen to the talk, John Salk, I'd ask him, just tell me, John, who wrote the Alphonsine Tables? And he answers, Julio, who paid my airfare from London to uh, Granada? <laughs> who is paying for my hotel? The French? No. <laughs> Therefore, the Alphonsine Tables were made in Toledo by the group of astronomers of Alphonsine <laughs> The kind of joke John, John enjoyed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this man had a good background in astronomy, mathematics, physics, and philosophy. 
an, an important stage on his life was the time in which he began working at the Oxford Museum of History of Science. And for him, <coughs> at that moment, it, he was extremely interested in uh, astronomical instruments, and this was the result of his work at the museum. But later on, in 1977, he got a professorship of history of science and philosophy in the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and this was a place he had a house there. And whenever I went to the Netherlands, I stayed with him in the same way as he stayed with me in Spain. I mean, we spent, uh, I spent many, for example, from Groningen, I went to Aarhus with John in order to attend the conference in honor of the retirement of a very important fellow who was a good friend of John also, Olaf Pedersen. Olaf Pedersen, who wrote the famous book, Survey of the Almagest. In around 1987, he, has, he was very sad about what happened. The chair of history of science in Oxford University had, was opened, and he was one of the candidates. It so happened that he didn't get the job. And <coughs> he had been living in Oxford, his place in England was Oxford. He had a house there, and he was all his all he wanted was to become professor at Oxford University and be able to leave Rodney. But he was not given the job. The, the fellow who got the scholar who got the, the position is an excellent uh, scholar. But John had an advantage that <coughs> the people uh, of the commission didn't didn't appreciate enough. John is the only historian I know who is able to write a book on 20th century cosmology, uh, which uh, this was his first important book. And he goes from 20th century cosmology to prehistory. His book, for example, on Stonehenge, which is this book, his book on Stonehenge. In the middle, he he worked a lot on the Middle Ages, and he also finished (coughs) by writing in two editions, two general history of astronomy. So if you want a professor who is a professor of history of science, John was the kind of person to be (coughs) accepted because he could speak from prehistory to the 20th century with the absolutely competent way. But he wasn't given the, 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 the he wasn't given the job, and this was very sad for him. And never mind. In 1999, he retired from Groningen University, and his retirement was absolutely spectacular. A enormous meeting in the great hall of the university, chaired by the rector of the university, the mayor of the city, everybody was there. And on that occasion, I am told that I am supposed to give the laudatio 
mm. of John North. You just imagine, in a Dutch atmosphere, a Spaniard speaking bad English, <laughs> and having to uh, talk to all these people. Well, never mind. I did. After this, he offered a dinner to about, about 100 people were well, there. And he told me, it is very expensive to retire. <laughs> it cost him quite a lot of money, and never mind. In 2005, he had cancer for the first time. And it so happened that at that time I was sending him by snail mail, obviously. We had no, at that time, <laughs> computers were not so common. Uh, and I used to send him my papers for him to revise before sending them to a publisher. And he gave me the answer, and on the phone he said, it's, it has been difficult for me to revise this paper, because tomorrow they are going to cut half of my bowels. And he recovered. After chemotherapy, he recovered. And I met him, for example, we organized a meeting, the both of us, with his wife Marianne in Paris. And we went to the museum of the, his, of the uh, medieval history, which is at Cluny, the Musée de Cluny. And I was astonished because he was walking around at full speed. And I, I, I was eight years younger than him. I couldn't prove it. But I said, this man is well. And after this, we had lunch and ate oysters. Uh, together, the three of us, I mean, uh, John, Marion, and me. And um, this did work. In 2007, I went to visit him to Oxford. I had a meeting in Paris, and therefore I thought, well, Paris, London, nowadays is fairly easy, so I go to London, then to Oxford, and spend one night there and see John. He was fairly well. But uh, obviously, in 2000, and immediately after this, he had the second cancer. And in this time, as all the, since he had cancer, I was phoning him every Sunday afternoon. We had long talks on the phone. And this second time, he was absolutely in very low. Uh, spirits. He didn't want to go through uh, chemotherapy again. I tried to convince him to do, and he did, but this time it didn't work. He died. He died the 31st October 2008. And I knew because his son Richard phoned me. Uh, he knew that I was a very good friend of his father, and I knew the same day that he had died. Afterwards, the, um, I went to Oxford for his burial, and that was the end of the story. Now, concerning his, some words about his work. On the occasion of 
his retirement in 1999, his two disciples, Lodi Nauta and Asho van der, van der Schacht, edited a first script entitled, a very accurate title, Between Demonstration and Imagination. And this is exactly what John's work proves, demonstration on one side. He is extremely competent mathematically, and he can do with mathematics whatever he likes. He has another characteristic. He was one of the first to use a computer, but not the way I use it, which is just by using somebody else's work. He could he learn how to make software, and he designed his own software. At the same time, I don't know what he did, but he had a computer that was not a standard one. He had combined the best pieces he could get and made a mixture of everything. And he said, my computer is much better than those there. So the, the, the problem is that it is not compatible with the others. And he had this kind of problem. His works, in, he was... Mm, demonstration, improving, showing demonstrations are, for example, his edition of Richard of Wallingford Words in 1976. And this is the only one of his uh, books I do not have, because this was before we met for the first time. But he won uh, in 2005. He prepared uh, a sort of book on the same topic on Richard of Wallingford, which was called, I don't know if you see it, Cross Clockmaker. Eh? Yes. And this is a book in which he somehow simplifies, uh, I mean, Richard of Wallingford, the book he published in 76, uh, was a critical edition of the works of there. And here it is just a very clear exposition of what, of the importance of Richard of Wallingford. And this is purely astronomical and mathematical, in which he describes, for example, not only St. Alban's clock, but also the Alban and Equatorium, and other kinds of instruments that were described by it. The second one showing this is the one you know, Horoscopes of History. Yes. yes. And if you see, this is the book in my possession, that is in a, in a worst state <laughs> that I have been breathing in and rereading it for years. This uh, book has something which is important. At the end, a computer program to be able mm, to mm, divide, to, to analyze the division of the houses in a particular uh, horoscope, uh, and then mm, extract from this the latitude for which they have been completed, the hour of the day, uh, and it is an extremely useful thing. I mean, I remember at that time I was uh, I was in the Arabic department at the University of Barcelona, and I was extremely lucky because we had a computer expert you know, at our service who prepared a lot of software for us to use in the history of astronomy and astrology. And I said, uh, Honorino, that was his name, 
could you please use this and convert this parameters written here into something I can use in the computer? And uh, he did it. I mean, the book was extremely useful. It was the first time somebody classified the different systems for the house divisions. And this work was later on completed by Edward Kennedy, uh, in, uh, who was using mainly astronomical tables and the evidence furnished by astronomical And later, through uh, both Jan Hagenleit and Jose Casulleras, were the ones who applied the same methodology to other uh, similar astrological pro problems, such as the Tassir, Atasir, uh, projection of rays, and so on. Uh, then the third book in this science is volume on Stonehenge. It is quite peculiar. Uh, because in this book, John analyzes all the possible orientations that could have uh, led to um, building uh, Stonehenge in the structure it has. Mm -hmm. It is a book which is really difficult to read, mainly because I get lost with all this kind of... But it is the proof that John can go from prehistory to 20th century astronomy without any kind of problem. Now, this is demonstration. What about imagination? Imagination appears especially in one of my favorite books by John, which is Chaucer's Universe. Yes. Huh? yes Chaucer's I Universe, it so happened that John, as I told you before, gave a lecture on Chaucer's astronomy at the department of the, uh, the no, no, summer course with more, more people than usual uh, at the University of Barcelona. And at that time, I had been asked to give a lecture on Chaucer's astronomy in Zaragoza on the occasion of a meeting of professors of English. So they wanted to have somebody to... So I had been studying the question before the, the book was published. Obviously, John had published a few papers on the same topic before, which I took into account. But when, I, when John appeared and we discussed the problem, I had a clear idea about what was it about. When I read the book, it was a confirmation, but I had some ideas already. And uh, this book, it is absolutely fantastic. On the one side, uh, John analyzes Chaucer's astronomical works, his treatise on the astrolabe, which is dedicated to his son Louis, and with an inscription that says, bread and milk for children. <laughs> The astrolabe is bread and milk for children. And this is something which is absolutely true because when I began to um, introduce students, in, uh, I was supervising doctoral thesis, I always began by, by an addition of a, an Arabic treatise on the astrolabe because I thought that was a good, excellent starting point for, to introduce people into the history of astronomy. And 
uh, his book on the Equatorium, uh, which was absolutely sensational, and it is analyzed carefully here by John. And concerning the astronomical and astrological imagery, which appears in the tales, not only in the Canterbury Tales, but also in other um, books by Geoffrey Chaucer. I mean, John was fantastic. You can believe it or not, but he, his way of dealing with the subject is, is excellent. And he, from every moment, he usually ends with a date and an hour, which in principle corresponds to the date and, and, and the hour in which these Chaucer wrote this particular tale. Uh, which means that this Chaucer is giving hints about the chronology of his own works and he is playing with people. It is, it is, it is peculiar because before publication, as I had some ideas of some things, I suggested a couple of ideas to John, and they were collected. I, I have reread these days the book, and I have found that I'm quoted there as giving him some ideas. Another extremely interesting book is The Ambassador's Secret. I don't know if you can see it, The Ambassador's Secret. It yeah. is a book is about a famous painting by Holbein. Yes. Yes. A painting in which you can see that on the table there is a set of several astronomical instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, um, there is a celestial sphere, there is a cylindrical dial, um, it is a pity that the, the images are not very good in order to send them there, but it is, there is a cylindrical dial, uh, a torquetum, a polyedrical dial, a geographical sphere, uh, uh, and so on. And also there is a crucifix in the left, on top of the image mm -hmm. here. There's a crucifix. And there is a most peculiar skull mm -hmm. over there, yes. which is, uh, uh, John described it as a distorted skull. Yes. So what is John doing with this? He does uh, marvelous things, although some of them I don't believe them at all, but never mind. <laughs> I mean, uh, John is, um, it is very peculiar. That it, uh, the, and this is something that can be believed. <coughs> the positions given in the painting to some of the dials give a hint to the date and the hour in which they point to a date and an hour. The date is Good Friday of year 1533. The latitude is London. Mm -hmm. And the hour is about 4 p.m. Hmm. And he is alluding somehow to the crucifixion of Christ. Hmm. The crucifix on, this, on one side of the image 
and would try the and the skull. So he is alluding to the crucifixion of Christ. The problem is why him, why the hour. The gospel is not very clear about the time and the yeah, Jesus Christ died. But some of them says ora sexta, which means midday. Some say something like three after three, three p.m. But there's no source talking about four four p.m. And John solves the problem by casting the horoscope of the moment. This is not in the in the painting, but it is the horoscope of Good Friday of 1533 as far in the afternoon in for the latitude of London. And he discovers that the ascendant is Libra, which is related in many sources to the crucifixion. It is always related to judgment, the two scales, the judgment. Mm -hmm. Midheaven is occupied by Saturn. And Jupiter is in the third house, almost three, three degrees from the fourth house, which is the, most, the lowest point. So he says that the horoscope is the only reason for choosing this hour. This is about the end of what I can say. The only thing I, I, I want to say is that I was extremely fond of John Moss. And uh, this is a man who, in my life, in my scholarly life, Ted Kennedy was somehow my father. John Wolfe was my elder brother. And David King was my brother of the same age, because we are both exactly the same age. So these are these three people from outside Spain who have really contributed enormously to my work and for, to whom I am absolutely grateful. And this is the end of the story. Thank you, Professor. Thank you for sharing Thank this you. with us. Um, I think it's a, a lovely testimony. And very touching. And very touching, yes. Um, to not only the band, the impact that it had in your life and in the life of the academia with all his work and his fabulous research. And as you said very well, he was someone who touched a number of topics from art history, which we were just mentioning, to archaeology, chronology, history of astronomy. And his works are still a starting point uh, to begin research on a number of topics. Uh, and uh, I think it's uh, a lovely testimony. And we can see not only the historian, but uh, the person, the human mm -hmm. being, and his sense of humor, his jokes. So thank you for bringing John North mm -hmm. to us. Yes. Yes, thank you very much. Okay.